This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. Thanks to -to direct-to-consumer businesses, the rise of agritourism, and even social media, it's never been easier for consumers to connect with those producing their food. Here on the Farm Traveler Podcast, we want to connect you with businesses offering direct-to-consumer products you can try at home, agritourism sites you can visit with your family, and exciting new technologies that are changing how your food is being grown. This week, I'm chatting with Donna Kilpatrick from Heifer International, a global nonprofit working to eradicate poverty and hunger through sustainable, value-based, holistic community development. Heifer International was kind enough to also sponsor this interview with Donna. With over 25 years of experience in agriculture, Donna Kilpatrick specializes in pasture-based livestock production, ecosystem restoration, and land stewardship. She leads Heifer Ranch in Perryville, Arkansas, where she serves as an accredited professional with the Savory Institute, the world's leading regenerative agriculture organization. The 1,200-acre ranch is a thriving, living ecosystem with stacked enterprises that include beef cattle, pigs, sheep, and poultry, raised in an integrated, holistically managed system. Heifer Ranch contributes premium grass-finished and non-GMO meat to the Grassroots Farmers Cooperative of small-scale livestock farmers, where Donna deploys and tests the Savory Institute's science-backed regenerative farming methods. So in our interview today, Donna and I will talk about her background and start with Heifer International, what regenerative farming practices look like at the ranch, how we can balance sustainability while also trying to feed the world, and a really cool story about how she is training her corgi to be a cattle dog. So when the show's over, check out Heifer International at the links in the description and enjoy the interview. All right, well, Donna Kilpatrick, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I am, I'm super excited to chat with you. I love learning more and more about ranching, about cows. Um, I've got to be honest, I didn't grow up around cows, but I love cows and I want to have cows eventually. That's my wife and I's plan eventually. So we'll see how that goes. 
Um, but kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you started working with this company called Heifer Ranch um, International. Yeah, sure. Um, so like you, I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, my parents were, my mom was a nurse. My dad was in HR. Um, but my grandparents had a farm in Eastern North Carolina that we would frequent, uh, regularly. Um, and there was just something about that place and the land that really, I mean, I grew up riding horses there and dirt bikes and just all the fun you could imagine as a child growing up on this, uh, it wasn't a ranch, a farm, um, in Eastern North Carolina that grew mostly commodity crops. So things like tobacco and cotton, um, but it was just, you know, it, it wasn't the crops, it was the land and walking through the fields that those are some of my most fond memories as a child. Um, you know, in high school, I had nothing to do with farming, but I went to a really unique college in North Carolina called Warren Wilson College um, that's based on a triad of academics, uh, work that's required of all students, regardless of financial need, and then required community service. And it was at Warren Wilson that I just deeply fell in love with farming because that was my work crew. So basically students, uh, half the day you were in classes, half the day you were on a work crew. Um, and I had originally been placed in the cafeteria and I went to the Dean of Work, uh, which I always felt like that's such a cool title. Can you imagine being the Dean of Work? But at <laughs> Warren Wilson, they have a Dean of Work. Um, and I basically begged to work on the farm. Um, and so that's where my real passion for farming began. Um, Warren Wilson was, you know, this was, I'm, I'm getting up there in age. And so this was like in the early nineties, um, when regenerative agriculture wasn't even a word that people are using. If anything, people are saying sustainably, um, produced or, uh, conservation efforts or, you know, so regenerative ag wasn't used at that point, but the farming practices that were taking place at Warren Wilson were way ahead of their time in terms of conservation, uh, rotation, um, land management, animal movement on the land, all of those things. That's interesting. And I think that's such a good point about regenerative ag, because I was talking with a, a, a beef rancher here in Florida, mm -hmm. and he's been saying, he said that, um, you know, they've been doing regenerative practices before there was like a key term regenerative. And sure. so do you think that those practices were around for a long time and then the label kind of came around? Like, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if we go back in history and we look at the farming practices of the BIPOP BIPOC community, um, indigenous cultures, those practices were definitely there. Um, and they deserve the credit for the, for the land healing practices that everybody's jumping on board now with. That's very true. So tell us a little bit about Heifer International. I know one of their big things is like, you know, regenerative agriculture and how important um, cows and beef is to not only our diets, but also the environment. So tell us a little bit about Heifer International. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I'll start with Heifer International, which is a large international development organization. We work in 21 countries throughout the world um, and we use a development model um, 
that's, you know, it's, uh, some people say, you know, it's like the teach a man to fish and he'll uh, be able to sustain himself forever. Whereas, um, you know, relief organizations, not to, there's a definite need for relief organizations, but it's a quick fix to an emergency. We're, we're going at this a little bit differently. Um, and what we want to do is train smallholder farmers uh, to be able to care for themselves, their families, their communities, um, and then tap them into markets so that they have a long-term solution and a viable way to make income uh, for many years into the future and pass that on to their families. Um, so that's our that's how we work. And you know, a lot of people are like, well, I know about Heifer International, but I didn't know about Heifer USA. We're one of those 21 projects um, and we work in the exact same way, the exact same development model as Heifer International um, in that we are training smallholder farmers in regenerative practices and then tapping them to markets. Um, so we do that, you know, through various forms, but the ranch it serves as one, a production base. So we're a 1200 acre ranch um, and we grow grass-finished beef, grass-finished grass lamb, uh, woodlot pork, and poultry, both broilers and turkeys, um, all, you know, through the lens of healing the ecosystem that we're stewarding. Um, we use those same, we teach farmers, uh, mostly in the Delta in the South, uh, but we teach farmers a lot through our, our YouTube platform, um how to you know you can go on there and learn how to grow chickens or learn how to grow swine or how to incorporate cover crops um, in your operation but we also do that by having farmers come to the ranch um, we work very closely with a cooperative called grassroots farmers cooperative and this is the market piece when i was talking about you know training farmers and then connecting them to markets um, Grassroots Farmers Cooperative is a farmer's own cooperative that started in 2014 with a lot of support from Heifer International. And we work with about 30 farmers, mostly in the Delta and the South, um, who raise the species of animals that I spoke about before. And that is an e-commerce platform. So, um, you know, I, I've been working with Heifer International now for 15 years. In fact, I, I just realized this is my anniversary of my 15th year with heifer um, so at the ranch what we're doing is we're producing we serve as the backstop uh, for production as new farmers come into grassroots farmers cooperative so our scale of production is relatively large now not large compared to say tyson's chickens but for a smallholder farm relatively large um, so we're raising about 35,000 broilers on pasture um, I think we're doing around 2,000 turkeys this year, 700 pigs on pasture. We've got a steer herd of about 110 with about 150 mama cow heifers. Um, and then what am I missing? Oh, sheep, about 110 ewes. We probably have 200 lambs on the ground right now. So it's a relatively large scale. All of that is grass finished. Or, I mean, obviously chickens and pigs eat grain, um, but that is non-GMO grain that all grassroots farmers feed to their livestock. Um, so we, we feed, you know, a standardized feed uh, that's good for the animals, good for people. Um, 
And then, as I said before, our pasture-based animals are grass alone. So no, no other feed besides forage that's grown on the ranch or hay. Gotcha. And before I forget about it, you mentioned um, kind of some chickens, like, for example, Tyson's like one of the biggest chicken farmer or I guess chicken processors in the country. Mm-hmm. Are some of the farmers you're working with, are they mom and pop operations or are they, for example, contract growers that might be working with a Tyson, for example, that are kind of looking to get more regenerative with their practices? Yeah, I would say the farmers that we're currently working with are more small scale. Okay, gotcha. Um, so it could be, you know, a couple or a family coming into farming. Um, and we provide technical assistance um, to get them off the ground and then grow for grassroots. Um, but through our education program on YouTube, our social media channel, we are teaching a lot of people who are growing um, conventionally ways to slowly transition or transition into regenerative, more regenerative uh, practices. That's awesome. And so what's the support been like on YouTube? Because I know like anytime I want to learn to fix something around the house, I go to YouTube and I'm like, hey, how do I fix the fridge? How do I, I don't know, get weeds out of my backyard? Like it's such a great learning resource. And so what's the feedback been like for y'all's YouTube channel? You know, it's been incredible. And we went into that because of COVID. Mm, Okay. Um, You know, we had we had been having farmers come to the farm or to the ranch um, and learn on site. Um, and when COVID hit, uh, that all of that shut down. Um, and so we have a very talented team uh, that started making videos. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, I mean, some of the videos have been seen thousands and thousands of times. Um, and they're really great videos. They're well done. Um, and as I said before, it ranges to anything from, you know, how to grow chickens the way that we do it um, in a regenerative approach to, uh, new, we just did one on a new salt mineral free choice feeder uh, for cattle. So there's lots of stuff out there. How to drag harrow your pasture, how to anything. Um, so it's, it's Heifer USA's YouTube channel. That's awesome. We'll have to link all that in the description. I mean, yeah. that's such a big pivot for you guys too, especially during COVID. I mean, you can't have farmers go there and tour it and said switching to YouTube, which is a great resource. And I think a lot of people... Work, I mean, you know, you had to do that. You had to switch. You had to pivot in order to survive, especially during the pandemic. So that's awesome. You guys did that and you've seen a lot of growth with that. Yeah, we really have. And I think, you know, when I think about COVID and the need to pivot, I think farmers in particular um, are in a really p- good position to do that because mm-hmm. I don't know of any farmer who on in an average day isn't constantly dealing with unexpected emergencies or a situation. So farmers are very, um, you know, have the ability to pivot. They do it all the time. So we just sort of did that and it, 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 it served us well. That's awesome. That's good to hear. And I mean, I've heard of so many stories um, during COVID where um, farmers were selling to restaurants or somewhere and then they shut down and then they just started selling direct and then they've kept up those models ever since. Yeah. And I mean, think, I think that's so fun because they can go directly to the, to the consumer and you can take out that middleman, that processor, that distribution company, where the farmer is going to get more money. The consumer is going to get cheaper food locally grown mm-hmm. by them. So I think it's, I know there's been a lot of negative with COVID, but I think this mm-hmm. has been one of those positives that, that have kind of come out from it, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and all of those things, all of those sort of roadblocks that you just mentioned for farmers. Um, when I started at, at I, I, 
I started talking about the fact that I've been with Heifer US Heifer uh, for 15 years, but just in the last four years here in Arkansas at Heifer Ranch in Perryville. Um, and that's when we really started working directly with the cooperative. And at the beginning, I wasn't hesitant about it. I was very anxious to do it. And I felt like it was the right pathway for us to scale and to provide product for the co-op. Um, but I didn't realize all the benefits of belonging to a co-op. And the main one, in my opinion, is that farmers are able to do what they do best and really focus on farming, not the distribution, not the aggregation, all of those things, not the marketing, um, you know, really focus on what they do well um, and take all that other stuff away. And I, I've become a huge fan of the cooperative model for that reason. Yeah. So I'm here in Florida and I know one of our biggest co-ops for farmers is Florida's natural. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of orange juice. And so they have some of the best orange juice out there and all the growers right. are able to really focus on growing and then still providing great orange juice for people throughout the world. And so okay. it's fun. Not a lot of people, especially consumers really notice and kind of realize what co-ops are and how much of a benefit they are. So that's awesome. You yeah. kind of have that experience yep. also. Yes. Agree. So going off of kind of more sustainability and regenerative and stuff. I know that there are some people, I guess some old school farmers and old school people outside of agriculture, they don't really buy the sustainability and regenerative trend. And the main component that they say is that you can't feed the world with sustainability and regenerative practices, but there's a lot of research that says otherwise. So what's your experience in there? Can you feed the world while also practicing sustainable and regenerative farming practices? Yeah, I mean, I think about this and I talk with my regenerative farming friends quite a bit about it. And what I really feel, you know, I've wrestled this one in my head a lot. Is it is it our responsibility to feed the world or is it our responsibility to feed our community? So one thing that I feel like, you know, we always talk about, we, we talk a lot about scaling up. But really, I think the answer is scaling out. So getting more and more of these little regenerative hubs across the country and feeding our communities and therefore feeding the world. Um, so that's sort of my take on it. I really, you know, the scaling out model instead of up. I like that. I mean, I think, again, going back to COVID, like we're, we're buying locally as, as local as we can, you know, I mean, you can't grow every crop in every state, but I mean, I think that if you're able to focus on, you know, selling in your, in your community, you can cut down on transportation costs, fuel yeah. costs, all that stuff. I saw this one thing. Um, I think it was a meme and it was like, um, it was like a little can of pineapples and it was like the ones, you know, that are cut and like they're in a little juice mm -hmm. cup and it was like grown in Brazil, packaged in Russia, yep. sold in Arkansas or something like right. that. And exactly. they were like, but we can grow this in the U S like, why, are, why is it going through all these different steps? Like, we need to grow locally and save with, I don't know, the millions of tons of CO2 that just right. went into that little bitty cup. Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. Um, so I know one thing y'all are very focused on is the holistic management model. So what does that look like? Yeah, so when, when I started here at the ranch uh, several years ago, I think one of the most daunting requests that I've had as an employee was to scale up quickly. Um, and I think, you know, at that time, I really took pause and thought about 
the fact that if we if we tried to scale, if we built all this infra infrastructure and we scaled up quickly, um, that our ecosystem wasn't going to support scaling rapidly, and that we really needed to take a step back and to um, you know think about regenerative agriculture and our our need to build healthy soil and build diversity in plants so that we could support a, a lot more animals. I mean, we've gone from a very, very small like petting zoo type situation to a, a pretty big ranch. Um, and I felt like in order to do that, the most logical organization to work with would be the Savory Institute. Um, so the Savory Institute their work is really to facilitate regeneration of the world's grasslands. Um, and they do that by teaching holistic management. And holistic management is really a group of people coming together and deciding their context. What are we, you know, what is, what is our North Star? And I keep Heifer Ranch's holistic context right on my desk, and I'm happy to read it for you. Um, the Heifer Ranch Hub will support farmers in a way that creates opportunities to earn a living income, positively impacts rural communities, and heals the land so that humans, animals, and the environment thrive. So with holistic management, every decision that I make or we make um, regarding financial decisions, land planning decisions, grazing decisions, we go through a, a series of, of decision, uh, basically a process of asking questions that help us determine if we're really making decisions that are going to help us get to our North Star, you know, to our context. Um, and that process sort of shifts the paradigm in which you think, um, and it enables, in my opinion, the work to get done. Uh, with a lot of people on board and with a clear, clear direction as as where you're headed and why it's important. That's very interesting. I mean, I think as more people kind of go for that holistic approach, I mean, not only caring for what you're growing, what you're raising, but also your local community and also the environment. Because I've heard so many people lately, yeah. I mean, they say if you, obviously, if you take care of the soil, you're going to have great crops, or you're going to have great grasslands for your um for your livestock. So it's great that more and more people are kind of jumping on that bandwagon, really. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, the through this lens, through this decision-making process, you're always factoring in society, economics, and the environment. Those are three key things that go into every, every uh, decision-making process. So about the grasslands thing, how much, I know Florida actually has a decent amount of wild grasslands that we have some cows on and stuff, which is mm -hmm. interesting. So what does that look like in Arkansas? Yeah, I mean, Savory uses the term grasslands, um, as, and, but it's really any body, any land mass that grows forage grass. Um, and you know, one thing that we're really seeing is that a lot of, a lot of land that was once grazed with cattle that no, no longer has livestock on it um, is in not as great shape as when those animals were there, that animals have a very uh, positive effect on the land um, and that we need livestock's positive impacts um, and inputs um, to heal the ecosystem. That's interesting because I've always thought about, you know, the whole climate change issue. People think cows are the problem. 
when, I mean, you look at grasslands that, like you just said, don't have cows or any grazing animals, they are a lot less healthy than they were. So do you think that, I mean, obviously how we use livestock are going to be kind of an answer to helping reduce climate change? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's like a little slogan that people say now, it's not the cow, but the how. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so true. It's about the management of their grazing. Um, you know, in, in holistic plant grazing, we really focus on the recovery time. So having those animals go in and impact in a positive way, uh, eat forage, uh, distribute manure, uh, distribute urine, uh, saliva on the plant is actually a really positive thing. And then move off and let those plants fully recover before the animals go back on. Um, and that process, when done correctly, is very positive for the land. Yeah, there was a study that I think was done in the UK or maybe Scotland, um, where a rancher, he basically did some rotational grazing and he experimented. And when he rotationally grazed effectively, his soil captured infinitely more carbon. The grass sure. was healthier, the beef was healthier, the beef was higher quality in the end. And so yeah. it was kind of proof that if you work correctly with the land and your livestock, both of them can succeed very, very well. And it's not just a trade-off. Like if you want to get a good cow, you've got to degrade the soil and just not worry about it. So it's great when you practice both of those things, both of them can benefit. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. And, you know, we've only at Heifer Ranch, we've only been doing this uh, for a couple of years now. And just as a land manager and a land steward driving around and looking at the differences between what I saw when I first arrived at the ranch um, and what I see now, huge differences for me that are just so obvious is how much water is, is standing on the soil surface um now opposed to when i started so when i started when you would go down in the bottoms you'd see lakes i mean if we got a heavy rain um it just wasn't infiltrating into the soil um now with different management we're seeing uh no lakes i mean maybe a couple but but nothing compared to what it used to be um we've also seen our soil organic matter rise by anywhere from one to 1.5 points. And what's fascinating about this is for every point that you increase in your soil organic matter, you have 20,000 more gallons per acre of holding capacity in your soil. So, you know, and it was great to actually take those tests and see it because it reinforced, oh my gosh, yeah, this is (laughs) what I'm seeing when I'm driving down into in our, you know, into our pastures. Um, and one thing that I didn't mention about our, our partnership with the Savory Institute is our ability uh, through a program called Ecological Outcome Verification um, to go out and do scientific testing, get a baseline test, a long-term monitoring test, um, once every five years. And then on every year we go in and we take, uh, we do 10 short-term monitoring tests. Um, so that a, a land steward can see if he or she is making progress towards, you know, their goals. Um, but we're doing that with our, I mean, we're starting out by doing this testing with our grassroots farmers. Um, because we talk about regenerative ag, we know that our practices are regenerative, but we need the scientific backing um, of these tests uh, 
to really be able to say, you know, this is where we're starting a year from now, look at the results from a year and say, okay, we're, we're going in an upward trend or not figure out how to correct that. Yeah. I mean, so your last one talking about water, I know that's a huge thing and I'm trying to find the author right now. I can't remember her name, but she has a book talking about beef and how it's kind of the answer to sustainability and stuff like that. But that most of the water that beef cows drink is going to be runoff, not because I know that's one of the big things talking about, you know, beef uses so much water, but like mm-hmm. 92 or 90 percent of the water they have is natural water. That's rain water that's runoff mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think that's a very interesting stat that a lot of people kind of miss sometimes. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I'm trying to think of the author of that, too. Um, it's not Nicolette uh, Han Nyman, is it? For Nyman no, Ranch? No, it's like Sustainable Dish, I think, is the name of her book. Oh, okay. Diana okay. Rogers, that's it. Yeah, that's it. yeah she's Fantastic. got Sacred Cow. Yeah, and that yeah. book is awesome. And she talks yeah. about, you know, kind of like your viewpoint, too, how cows are an answer to the solution mm-hmm. and that they mm-hmm. actually eat a lot of uh, well, I mean, just the impact they have on native grasslands and also the water thing, which is very interesting. So, yeah, I was trying. You were talking about that. I was like, crap, what is her name? And so just yeah, found it, so yeah, yeah. we're on the same I'm wavelength. Surprised, I'm surprised I don't have her book right here. Yeah, I was looking at your books and I thought you did for oh, a yeah, second. I was I, I saw like the green and the yellow. And I think that's like the spine of her book or something. I was yeah, like, hey, I have minute. a lot of books over here on the left and I feel confident it's in there because that is definitely one that anyone interested in regenerative agriculture should read. Yeah, she, man, she's been doing a lot lately. She was on the Joe yeah. Rogan podcast a few yeah. months ago. And I yeah. mean, she got, you know, of course, millions and millions of views and everybody sure. was like, holy cow. So yeah, that, that's very exciting. Um, all right. So I got to ask, you also have a cattle corgi. So what's the, <laughs> what's the whole story behind that? I think that's so cool. I love corgis. I mean, I don't, who doesn't love corgis? So what's that story? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I became interested in corgis maybe about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I just love their size. I mm-hmm. like having the dog with me. Um, and then when I was doing a little bit of research about them and found out that they actually, you know, they herd cattle um, and then looked at some YouTube videos of corgis herding cattle. Um, I decided when I got another dog that it was going to be a corgi. Then to seal the deal, um, I was at a training at Will Harris's ranch in Bluffton, Georgia, and there was um, one of the employees has a corgi, and I absolutely fell in love with it, and I was like, that's it. I'm going to get a corgi. (laughs) Um, My corgi, yeah, he's not... He hasn't gone off leash around the cows yet. He's still young. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is that we have six livestock guardian dogs that really, really dislike other dogs being on the ranch. So there's a little bit of a safety issue too. And I feel very protective about him. We, we Unfortunately, we actually lost a dog uh, in a tussle with one of our livestock guardian dogs. So I feel a little bit traumatized about that and very protective. Um, but fortunately, you know, the ranch has the mama cow herd is, uh, is on this piece, piece of property called the North side. And to get to the North side, you have to go through Perryville. So it's not the river that surrounds the ranch on three sides divides it. So you have to drive and our livestock guard dogs are not on that side. And I feel like this is going to be his perfect, you know, mm-hmm. training ground, um, but he's really a pet <laughs> and <laughs> at this point he's a pet and if anyone knows where to send a corgi uh for training uh that's what i'm looking for 
There you go. I'd like to have him professionally trained. <laughs> That's so fun. I think herding dogs and I mean, um, guardian dogs on farms are just the coolest things ever. I mean, it's so fun. I've even seen some places. I know a farmer in North Carolina. He um, has a guard goose around his chickens, and apparently the goose is very, very protective. So, it's, well, it's... that's that's fascinating because our our manager of poultry, um, Sam Noble, we are we have four livestock guardian dogs um, that are supposed to be with our poultry, and they do a good job of keeping like big predators away. Mm-hmm. But what we're struggling with is small predators like skunks getting in our schooners or oh. schooners are gigantic chicken tractors or skunks, possums, weasels, raccoons. And so she just bought, I think she got six, maybe eight geese, little baby <laughs> geese um, that she's letting grow up with the chickens and then they will live in the schooners and we'll see. Um yeah, so we might be, you know, switching from guard dogs to guard geese um, if, it, if it works out. Hey, well, there you go. I mean, you never know. It's so fun to watch like their natural instincts. Yeah. I know growing up, um, my church, we had like a little pond out back. And every every winter, there would be like five geese that would come in and just hibernate, not hibernate, but they just kind of stay there because it was warmer. Right. And But they were so wild like people would get 10 feet within them and they just go after you and attack you it was i honestly can't remember how many old people i saw run for those geese i felt bad for laughing but it was kind of funny to see yeah i have a scar on the back of my leg from the geese at (laughs) heifer farm in rutland mass they were they were vicious um so maybe this is the answer oh my gosh do you think the corgi will be vicious at all no, absolutely not. <laughs> he's he's the most gentle thing in the whole world. Oh, that's so cute. I yeah, saw some video, oh, must have been months ago. Um, it was like a sheep farmer and the cattle or the, the sheep herding dog was on top of a sheep, but just like sleeping while the sheep was walking around. He was so like, cute. I'm just I'm just here chilling. He's like, yeah. if danger comes, I'll get him. But in the meantime, I'm just going to nap. I love it. I love it. <laughs> that's so fun. All right. So. One of my talking points I have written down is that you are also mostly vegan. Is that correct? Yes, I would say I'm mostly, uh, my my partner and I eat a mostly plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. And that is because that is her decision for her health. She's also a professional cook. Mm, so okay. who, who is to argue with that? I mean, you know. Like I come home and there are beautiful meals ready to go. I actually really enjoy it. Um, I have been incorporating maybe once a month, grilling a steak, that kind of thing. I absolutely believe that livestock are just critical to the rehabilitation of land. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I have a problem with really is monocultures. Mm, So, so when, you know, when I hear the vegan person who's eating these alternative burgers um, talk about how superior their diet is, I really just want to go back to them. What we do at home is we eat local. We buy from an Arkansas vegetable cooperative um, and we truly eat local. And I think that's really key. Um, I think that you know, it's really important to, I actually believe it's really important to have a very diverse diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've gone on these kicks of paleo. Um, I don't, I don't, 
I don't say that I'm anything. I just try to eat local and try to eat a diverse diet. And I think, you know, in our land management, um, in how our community, people community dynamics work, diversity is really important. Um, and I think that that's true also with what we eat. Yeah, you know, you always hear the term, um, it's healthy to eat like a rainbow, like a colorful, um, you know, fruits, vegetables, everything like, um, and I always hate, you know, when people demonize other people's diets, I mean, like, if you want to be a vegetarian for health purposes, like my mom did that for several years, and her health improved dramatically. And then you hear other people that switch to the carnivore diet, and their health improves dramatically. So we're all different, like, it doesn't matter what your diet is, as long as you're healthy, and we really need to stop demonizing people. And I I mean, completely agree. Yeah. And and especially with the whole, I mean, it's interesting, because I'm actually having an episode go out tomorrow about cultured meat. And we had some really good discussion about that and how it's an additional item. It's not Mm -hmm. going to replace meat, and it shouldn't replace meat. But -hmm. I feel like a lot of people that have those alternative proteins, like the plant based burgers or something, they are like, Oh, this is so much better for the environment and so much healthier for you. I'm like, but it's super mm-hmm. duper processed. Those ingredients are like dozens and dozens of ingredients and chemicals when, you know, a burger is just a burger. And so, I mean, it's not sure it's a choice for you. If you're vegetarian and you want to have that burger experience, sure, you can have it. That's OK. But yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I think, you know, culture is so weird right now. We don't need to demonize people just because they have different diets. Yeah, people are different. I think everybody should be able to do their thing. But I would really you know, I really feel like as local as you can get in your food choices, the better and just an abundance of colors. Like, yeah. our, you know, our dinner plates are always just like you said, a rainbow. Um, and when it's like that, I think for me, that's the right way to go. Yeah. I mean, you're having healthier options. You're having colorful options. I mean, you know, anytime you go to like, I don't know, McDonald's or shoot, even Chick-fil-A, I'm a big fan of Chick-fil-A, but Everything is beige. I mean, yeah, it's I was not say it's yellowish beige. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah, and of course that's excluding the fruit basket. But I mean, you know, fries, right. the, the chicken, the bread—it's all, all yeah. kind of beige. So I mean, yeah, the yeah. healthier you are, you're getting more. Um, I don't know, antioxidants, vitamins, all that good stuff. So it's interesting. And yeah, my wife and I—we try to eat locally as locally as we can. We've been going to farmers markets and you know buying local honey, buying local beef, buying produce from. Um, you know, little farmers that are selling mm-hmm. stuff like there's a bunch of lavender farmers around here in Florida, which Ooh, is very interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So huh. we've been buying some for like around the house and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's really That's cool. Awesome. And I think that whole thing about buying as locally as you can at farmers markets is huge because, I mean, like I, I try to stress this like every time we talk about it, you're keeping that money in your local economy, which is phenomenal. You're helping those businesses. You're helping your community. And, you know, you're also getting something that's pretty fresh, which is great. Yeah, totally agree. And I'd also add, you know, to that, that um, it's, I, I don't let it pass by that we're very fortunate to be able to do that. Mm. Not everyone is able to shop locally. Um, so yeah, that's also a thing, getting more local food to more people um, is, you know, that's what we're working on with Grassroots Farmers Cooperative, um, other cooperatives, Farmers markets, really important. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you might have an interesting perspective on this with um, kind of heifer international working with different countries. But um, I think it's interesting because some companies like Impossible Burger, for example, I saw at some showcase, they had a slogan that said, our goal is to remove livestock from the world. And I was like, well, mm, yeah. yeah, I was. but I mean, like you've got to think about the lower developed countries, 
where a beef a beef cow or a goat for example that's going to be a large part of their diet and i mean Right. They're healthy. Like that's a huge part of their diet. We don't need to take that away from them. Like what, what kind of experience do you have with that with the other, other countries that Heifer International kind of helps out with? You know, I've only traveled with Heifer to Haiti um, and I've seen, you know, I, so I haven't traveled a lot with Heifer, uh, but I know that they use livestock that is appropriate for the community where they're working. Hmm, okay. So there's a lot of pre-work that goes into a community receiving training, livestock, that kind of thing. Um, so I know that that, you know, it, it is, it's based on what the community wants, but also w- what's feasible for that community and what makes sense. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, that totally does. I mean, it's interesting to kind of learn more about like how different livestock play different parts and how one livestock that might work in Haiti definitely won't work here in Florida or somewhere else. So I mean, it's cool how, I don't know, I always think it's really cool how like some cows like Holsteins, for example, would be great um, cows to have in like Wisconsin, but not so much here in Florida where it's hotter and you need some heat tolerant cows like Brahmin. So I think that's always really interesting. Yeah, well, it's funny that you give that example because I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador and worked with cattle farmers uh, down on the border of Ecuador and Peru. Um, And the farmers there, I worked specifically with the Cattlemen's Association, and I would go and help people with their, you know, vaccination programs or whatever they needed. But they all wanted Holsteins. Mm. Like, that's the thing. They wanted they wanted what they saw at these huge farms in North America, you know, and trying to talk with them and say, I get it. That's a huge, beautiful Ben and Jerry's cow but that's not the most appropriate animal for this eco region. Um, and that's a hard hurdle to cross. I bet it is because I mean, they're, they're probably thinking, you know, these cows produce a lot, a lot of milk. They're in great shape. Let's just bring them down here. But then I don't know, you've got different feeds. You've got obviously different environments, different knowledge. Right. So those cows are probably not going to produce as much as they would in, in Wisconsin oh, yeah, as they would no. in Ecuador. Yeah, it's just, I mean, the welfare of the animal suffers mm. greatly. Yeah. And, you know, when you try to force it into an ecosystem that isn't correct for it. That's true. I had an animal science professor in college, and he always said, a happy cow is going to produce. An unhappy cow is not going to produce. You've got to make sure that yeah. cow is happy, well-fed, comfortable, and then they'll give you everything they need. You'll have high-quality milk, high-quality beef. Um, whatever. So you just to make sure that they're happy. I mean, it's kind of like that slogan, happy cows come from California, or I think that's pretty cool. That's some, that's some yeah. pretty good marketing. Yeah, it is good marketing. That's awesome. But I agree. I, I think, you know, one thing that I'm really proud about uh, with our production here at the ranch is that we go to great uh, lengths to make sure that our livestock are incredibly happy. Mm. Um, and when you go out into the pig, you know, Christine, who raises our pigs and does such a beautiful job with that, when you go out and look at them, they're just so fleshy and happy. And I swear they are smiling. <laughs> um, and it's because they are cared for and they're in the right environment uh, and they have everything they need. Um, enrichments, you know, and all those things. So that, that, that that's awesome to hear. Um, real quick, before I forget. So I know you have sheep, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a bad experience with sheep. I interned at a school and the sheep were wild. I mean, just like running, really? kicking, jumping on hay. 
I mean, I, I I don't think they were taken care of in the best way, but I think we had like four or five. So are your sheep like pretty chill? I was just going to ask, are you sure you didn't have goats? Yeah. No, I mean, they were sheep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've heard the like same thing goats. about goats. Yeah. No, our sheep are totally chill. I mean, they have their moments where they run around and jump, but no. And Christine, who manages the pig, she also manages the sheep and um, she uses really gentle management techniques she can move the entire flock which is almost what 250 sheep by herself oh, wow that's a lot of sheep and, okay. and long distances like she can move them they, they just follow her um so yeah no our sheep are pretty chill that's awesome so she moves them without a, a dog or anything just by herself well the dogs come with the dogs her. do okay yeah but they're just walking with the sheep I mean, it's funny when you see that this gigantic <laughs> flock of sheep moving, you'll see a curled up tail like sticking right in the middle. Otherwise, you wouldn't even know it's a dog. Oh, that's so cute. Now, did yeah. you watch um, Clarkson's Farm on, Am on Amazon Prime? No, but I'll write it down and I will watch it. Yeah, so it's it's one of the, I'm not sure if you watch Top Gear, but he does Top Gear in the Grand Tour on Amazon. He's like this British guy. He's hilarious. And he um, did this farming show and it's, like he's very entertaining, but it was also just so phenomenal because he was just very real and open about everything that's going on. And he mm -hmm. raised, I think, like 50 sheep or something like that. And he kind of takes, in the episode, I think it's just talked about the, the lambing phase. And yeah. um, he's just so honest in like how they bred them, how they cared for them, the whole birthing process. And he's very honest when they lose a couple of them. Sure. And so, I mean... I don't know. It was just wild. And, and of course, in, in that show, he has an instance where he's trying to move them to a field and things just go AWOL. Like they are all over the place, jumping over fences right. and stuff. And he's got a, a dog, one dog that's like doing a decent job, but it, it was a pretty big flock of sheep. So that was really funny. Yeah. You need to watch it. I try to tell everybody to watch it. It's, it's yeah, very fun I wrote to watch. It down. I will watch it. Yeah. And not to say that we don't have those days where everything goes to hell in a handbasket. We have those days, you know, relatively often oh, yeah. in some enterprise, but generally, you know, the same with our steers. We, we just move them. Uh, right now we're actually, trying out some new technology. So we're really focusing on technology to um, help us be more efficient. We're a small team. It's and another in interesting fact. It's uh, our livestock team um, is all women. Mm. So yeah, very, and it wasn't designed like that. It just sort of came to be like that. But we, you know, a lot of people are interested in that, that it's an all women run ranch. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, testing out this new gate lifter so it attaches to the poly wire and then it's solar powered and then it lifts the gate up it beeps um, continually for about 15 seconds and then the gate raises and the cows go underneath it um, they did super well day before yesterday this morning i don't know if we started too early we we were out there quite a bit earlier than usual to move them about half of them were like, no way, we're not going underneath <laughs> that. So I get it. There are days like that. That's funny. Yeah, I bet they see that and they're like, we want nothing to be a part of that. Like, I no know. thanks. And the grass is so much greener on the other side. They could just step through, <laughs> but no. I mean, hey, they're smart. I mean, cows are smart. Yeah. Sometimes they're very, very stubborn. I mean, sometimes more stubborn than us. But I mean, yeah, they're very, very smart. Yeah. Well, Donna, this has been such a cool conversation. I mean, I feel like I learned a lot about Heifer International, Heifer USA, everything like that. If people want to learn more, and especially if farmers want to work with Heifer or maybe they want to help them out, where can they go? Uh, definitely go to our website. Um, it's heiferusa.org. 
also go to heiferinternational.org. Um, that'll steer you to the volunteer page where you can uh, sign up to come and work. Um, we take people, that's another really interesting thing about our organization. We train farmers. We also have residential experiences. So we have volunteer housing and we provide a small stipend and people can come and learn how to farm and stay anywhere from three months to a year. Um, on occasion, we'll work out a smaller, uh, you know, time of residency, um, but it's an incredible opportunity uh, right now. You know, like right now, think about our volunteers. So we have two people here right now. One is a very young um, woman from Mississippi who is going to inherit land and she's going to farm and she comes with such an incredible vast array of experience and things like canning and growing blueberries and she wants to learn about livestock so she's here doing that uh, we also have a, a a woman who um you know a professional she's a lawyer um, and she wanted to learn about farming and she's one of the, she's probably the best worker we've ever had um, and she's here and she's completely she just dove right in um, she'll go out and check the chickens at three o'clock in the morning if it's rained. I mean, she is just all in on this. Um, you know, we have an employee actually, Lizzie Parker, who taught school for, I believe, 15 years, started eating grassroots meat and decided that she wanted to change her life and learn how to farm. So she came about a year and a half ago, spent some time with us as a volunteer. She was incredible. And I hired her as an assistant rancher. So she works with me a lot with the ruminant, well, with cows. Uh, she works with Christine with the sheep. Um, and she's learning her passion is regenerative agriculture. So we have a lot of opportunities. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like your team is really big and I mean, also really dedicated about learning more about regenerative and kind of sustainable mm -hmm. ranching. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on. Um, you'll have to update us on how the corgi training goes. Let us know how that goes. <laughs> and also the geese. And also the geese. Yes, very <laughs> interested in the geese. All right, will do. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Farm Traveler podcast. Be sure to check out all the links below for more on Heifer International. If you're a longtime listener, you know the deal. Thank you so much for your support. Consider sharing this episode with a friend or family member, a coworker, um, the person you're buying groceries from, whoever. That helps us out a ton. And if you're new here, consider subscribing to the show wherever you're listening on, whatever it's, if it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. We release new episodes every week, and we can't wait for you to listen to more of our awesome episodes. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.